Uh, We sang a few moments ago these words. I want to begin with them and, Lord willing, end with them this morning. How vast and measureless the flood of mercy unrestrained. The penalty was paid in full. The spotless lamb was slain. Salvation, what a priceless gift, received by grace through faith. We stand in robes of righteousness. We stand in Jesus' name. Try to keep those words in mind. And as I just said, we will end on that note this morning. For now, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Doesn't that sound good? Chapter 3. We're finished with chapter 1. We're finished with chapter 2. Full steam ahead. We move into chapter 3 this day. And I invite you to follow along as I read the first eight verses. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. That's our text. Let me begin by asking a question. What do we do when we're losing an argument? You've never lost an argument, so completely hypothetical situation. Use your imagination. What would you do if you ever were to lose an argument? What do we do? How do we handle it? How do we respond? We're in the midst of a debate. We're in the midst of an argument. Let's be even more specific. It has, dare I say, something to do with the way we think or something to do with the way we behave. And we're losing big time. The facts are stacked a mile high against us. We're losing the argument. How do we respond? What do we do? There are only two options on the table. We only do one of two things. Option number one is this. We acknowledge it. Now, let's not go there. No, we have to go there. We acknowledge it. Uh, We admit our mistake. We admit our error. We embrace the other viewpoint. We might even thank the person for bringing it to our attention, being so patient with us and arguing and debating with us and bringing the facts, presenting the case, their case, declaring the truth. And we change, we alter our behavior, or we alter our thinking. In a word, we repent, don't we? Option number two, far more common. Option number two is this, we change tactics. That's what we do. We change tactics. 
We make excuses in an attempt to justify ourselves. Or this is a good one. We divert attention away from the real issue. Or we walk away so that we don't have to face the issue. Or we go on the offensive by mounting a personal attack. Or we shift blame by suggesting that responsibility lies elsewhere. And on and on and on and on it goes. Only two options. Option number one, we acknowledge the facts. We change our position, our way of behaving, our way of thinking. Option number two, we adopt smoke and mirrors and we adopt different tactics and try to draw attention away from the real issue. That's what's going on, option number two, in the verses I just read. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. In chapter 2, you thought we were finished with chapter 2. Oh, you poor soul. No, no, no. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, Paul is speaking directly to a group of people. He has a very specific group in view, the Jews. And he is arguing with the Jews. He is debating with the Jews. And what he's trying to do, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, through to verse 29, is to show them that they're wrong. It's to show them that their thinking is wrong. His goal is to undermine their false assurance. And he basically does this in two ways. First of all, he goes after their religious obedience. You see, the Jews think they're an obedient people. The Jews possess the law of God, that law which God gave to them. And they think they're obeying it. And they think that by obeying it, they're pleasing God. Well, Paul presents the facts. And he demonstrates, look, when it comes to judgment, God's going to judge our secrets. When it comes to God's wrath, God is going to judge the desires of our hearts. You don't keep the law. You, 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 you are, oh, you're unbelievably deceived if you think you keep the law. As a matter of fact, you think you keep the law and you're honoring God and you're pleasing God and you boast in God, but in actual fact, you dishonor God. And not only do you dishonor God, but the name of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. There is this disconnect between reality and their perception of reality. Paul brings them the facts concerning their religious obedience. Second thing he goes after is their religious observance. Circumcision, in particular. He could have mentioned other things, but circumcision is the big one. Because for your average Jew, that physical right, that physical act of circumcision, as far as they were concerned, that made them one of God's covenant people. That means they were part of the nation of Israel. That means that they were a Jew. And just by being a Jew... Simply, on the basis of that act of physical circumcision, they thought they were blessed. And they thought all was well with their relationship with God. Well, Paul brings the facts. And he demonstrates to them, look, God isn't really interested in the external rite of circumcision. What he's interested in, what he's after is this, a radical circumcision of the heart. He's after an inner, inward transformation of the heart by the Spirit. He is concerned with the new birth. Here are the facts. He presents the facts undermining and challenging their false perception concerning their religious obedience, undermining their false perception completely skewed concerning their religious observance. Do you remember the illustration I gave last week? Kerplunk. You remember that one? Some of you had to go up and Google, home and Google it afterwards. What's he talking about, Kerplunk? Uh, one of you passed me in the foyer afterwards and said, Jenga. I said, same to you. Jenga. What's, 
Then I remembered. It's a game. Jenga. I apologize. Jenga, those wood blocks, right? You build a stack, then you have to pull the wood blocks out, and the idea is not to cause the tower to come tumbling down. Well, that's what's going on in these verses, chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Paul's playing a game of kerplunk or a game of Jenga. He's trying to bring the whole thing down. Their false understanding, their false perception, and how does he do it? He gives them the fact. Guess what? They aren't interested in the facts. They are losing this argument big time. They have nothing to come back with. They have nothing to present in terms of some sort of defense of their position. They have nothing to back up their position. And so rather than choose option number one, which is what? Yeah, you're right, Paul. Oh, I thank God you came along, Paul. And you, and you showed us our error, and you showed me my futile, silly, completely distorted way of thinking. You, 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 you've brought to my attention the facts. I thank you. I'm now going to change my mind. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to change my conduct. I'm going to change my position. No, they opt for option number two. And Paul knows they're going to go down that road. Why does he know they're going to go down that road? Because he's been to Corinth, he's been to Ephesus, he's been to Thessalonica, and everywhere the Apostle Paul has gone as a missionary, he has debated the Jews, and he has argued with the Jews, and repeatedly he has brought them the facts. And he knows what? They're not interested in the facts. They have too much riding on their misconception of the truth. They have too much invested in their way of thinking. Let me put it another way. They are too proud. And so they choose option number two, which is what? Diversion. And Paul knows that's what they're going to do. He's a Jew after all. And he's debated with them. He's argued with them. He knows the thought process. He knows how they're going to respond. And so in the first eight verses of chapter 3, he heads them off. He could have opened chapter 3 with this. I know exactly what's going through your mind. I know the objections you're going to bring now in order to divert my attention from the real issue. You don't want to deal with the facts. And so here are the little rabbit trails you're going to want to go down. He raises four. They are all related to God. They all consist of a hypothetical question coming from the Jews and a solid, rock-solid response from the Apostle Paul. And so the first objection has to do with God's purpose It's right there, glaringly obvious in the first two verses. Here's the question. The Jews are speaking, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now jump over here, verse 2, Paul's response to this objection. Much in every way. To begin with, especially, chiefly, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's his response. Now, can I role play a little? I'm going to role play whether you want me to or not. 
I've tried to get into these verses and reword for us exactly what the Jews are saying, their objection, and exactly how Paul responds. And so listen to this little role play, beginning with the Jews, based on verse 1. Paul, you've told us that true Jews are those who are circumcised in the heart by the Holy Spirit. So those who've been born again by the Spirit of God. Paul, if you're going to redefine for us what it means to be a Jew, can you please tell us what value there is in being a Jew in the old sense of the word? What was God's purpose in setting us apart from the nations? Are you saying there is no advantage in being a part of the nation of Israel? All right? That's their question. That's their objection. Paul's response, verse 2. Let me reword it. My fellow countrymen, we have a tremendous advantage. But I'm likely not thinking of what you're thinking. I probably don't have in mind what you have in mind. I'm thinking of the oracles of God. From Moses to Malachi, God spoke to us. After God called Abraham, he continued to reveal himself to the nations through creation. He did not leave the nations without witness, but he never gave them special revelation. He never gave them any oracles. They had no Moses. They had no prophets. They had no scriptures. Of all the nations in the world, we're the one nation to which God revealed himself in a special way. You want to talk about advantages. Oh, what an unbelievable advantage. That's his response. Objection number two has to do with God's faithfulness. And so we hear from the Jews in verse three. Okay, what if some were unfaithful? They're referring to themselves, Jews. Does their faithlessness, lack of faith, nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul responds, verse 4, by no means. God forbid, I think is the old authorized version. That's better. God forbid. Let God be true. Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, fascinating, he quotes from Psalm 51. David's psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba, right? And David writes in Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What's going on here? Role play. We begin with the Jews. Paul, God made a covenant with us. He said he would be our God and we would be his people. He made a promise. But Paul, you are saying that most of us are unfaithful. You are saying that most of us aren't even real Jews. You are saying that most of us, we're not the heirs of God's covenant with Abraham. Paul, if that is true, then God is unfaithful. He has broken his promise. Paul responds. It's right there in the fourth verse. Let me reword it as follows. My fellow countrymen, that is a horrible insinuation. Do you have any idea? Do you have the slightest idea what you are saying? Let's place God on one side of the balance and humanity on the other side. Oh, God alone is true. 
God alone is faithful. All he says is true. His precepts and his promises. He abounds in truth. We don't. What are we in comparison to God in the balance? We are altogether lighter than a breath. Let's think for a moment in terms of David's experience. He sinned. When he repented, he acknowledged that God's punishment was justified. Do you understand this? God is faithful. He is faithful to his promise to bless if you trust and obey. And he is faithful to his promise to curse if you rebel and disobey. God hasn't reneged on his promise. You've missed the promise because you've refused to believe. They're not finished. Objection number three, verses five and six. And here they hone in on God's righteousness. Look at the objection, verse five. But, 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 but. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? What shall we conclude? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. Paul's response, verse six, by no means, God forbid. For then how could God judge the world? How could God judge the world? Let me reword it. Dialogue as follows. Paul, you're saying God is righteous. He's righteous in judging us. He's just to judge us. That means, Paul, just working it through here, that means our unrighteousness actually shows God's righteousness. It means that our unrighteousness actually displays God's character more beautifully, wonderfully, fully. That seems to benefit him greatly. Isn't it unfair of God to punish us for something that actually benefits him? Isn't it unjust of God to inflict wrath on us? Paul's response based on the sixth verse. My fellow countrymen, what a horrible insinuation. You believe in God. You believe he's the judge of the earth. You believe he will do right when he judges on the last day. How can you believe these things, yet question his judgment at present? Oh, God disposes all things according to the rule of equity. He renders to all people according to their works. His actions are occasionally mysterious, but they are always righteous. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. They don't give up yet. One more objection, verse 7. But, but, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul's response, verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. So the first objection focused on God's purpose. The second focused on God's faithfulness. The third focused on his righteousness. This one is concerned with his grace. What are the Jews saying? Verse 7, here it is. Paul, as we understand it, if we're getting you correctly, God displays his grace in pardoning sinners. That's wonderful. But it seems to imply that sinners make God look good. 
it wouldn't be fair of God to punish someone for doing something that actually makes him look good. As a matter of fact, your gospel likely means we ought to sin even more. Because the more we sin, ergo, the more good comes, meaning God's grace is glorified. Paul's response, based on the eighth verse, my fellow countrymen, you are saying we should commit sin because it leads to good, God's grace? You know the end does not justify the means. We are undeserving of the least good, having plunged ourselves into evil. Mercy is an attribute of God, whereby he pities us in our misery. How could you possibly disparage his mercy by suggesting such a thing? Your condemnation is just. That's it. He knows they have these four objections because he heard it in Corinth. He heard it in Berea. He heard it in Thessalonica. He has heard it every place he has traveled as he has proclaimed the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that is the Gentile. He knows firsthand how the Jews have responded. Not interested in the facts. Not interested in discussing the depth of their depravity and their sinfulness. Not interested in coming to terms with their misunderstanding of the scriptures which have been entrusted to them. Not interested in debating or arguing over their completely man-constructed, man-focused religion. No, it's all smoke and mirrors, diversion. And he knows these four objections are coming because he has heard them time and time and time again. Three lessons. Oh, there are more. We're going to concern ourselves with three. Three lessons. The first two, let me say, are by way of inference. Inference. They aren't the main point of the text. The main point of the text comes out in the third lesson. But I think it's important that we hear these first two. I think they'll be beneficial to us. Here's the first lesson these verses teach us. Here it is. Number one, God's word brings the greatest advantage. God's word brings the greatest advantage. That's implied in verses one and two. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Notice, Paul doesn't say anything about geopolitical aspirations. He doesn't say anything about the land. He doesn't say anything about any temporal blessings. He doesn't say, oh, yes, 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 just because you're Jewish, you're automatic. It's guaranteed God's going to bless you. No, much in every way. What is the blessing? What is the advantage? What is the privilege that the Jews alone possessed? Here it is. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That was their great advantage. That was their great calling. Oh, friends, what an advantage to possess the Word of God. I was reading a little bit of Thomas Manton, wrote centuries ago, just reading him this past week. And he was meditating, and what I was reading, meditating upon God's Word. And let me just share with you briefly three things he said. First is this. Oh, Christian, consider the Bible's author. His authority is supreme. 
His power is infinite. His knowledge is exact. His truth is unquestionable. His holiness is immaculate. And his justice is impartial. Consider, just consider, ponder the Bible's author. Secondly, consider the Bible's subject. It deals with matters of eternal consequence. Deuteronomy 32. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, by this word, you shall live. Consider thirdly the Bible's prophet. It enlightens and directs us. It quickens and comforts us. It supplies and strengthens us. The Bible, God's word, brings the greatest advantage. Another ancient author wrote the following. I, I read this, oh, probably 12 years ago, and penned it on the inside of my Bible, and it catches my attention every so often. Here it is. Those who fear God are those who stand in awe of the Bible. That's it. How do you know if you love God? You love his Bible. His word. How do you know if you fear God? You fear his word. How do you know if you really desire God? You desire his word. How do you know if you really delight in God? You delight in his word. His word is himself. His word is his giving of himself to his people. Oh, what an advantage. God's word brings the greatest advantage. The second truth, lesson, by way of inference, And these verses is as follows. And yes, you've heard me correctly once I say it, because you might question it, but here it is. Yes, this is correct. Facts rarely change people's minds. Oh, please learn that, friend. The facts, the facts, hard, cold facts, rarely change people's minds. The vast majority of people are not interested in the facts. They have an emotional or personal investment in what they believe. Don't confuse me with the facts. But when the facts are presented to them, what is the knee-jerk reaction? It is avoidance. It is option number two. You ever heard of a red herring? You ever heard that expression? Red herring. It's old. It's British. A couple hundred years ago, a herring, a fish, they're not actually red. So after you smoke them for a while, they turn red and, and they smell. They emit a really strong smell. And apparently, a couple hundred years ago, what some hunters or a hunter would do when it was time for him to train his young hounds is he would use red herrings. Why? Well, he'd give his young hound the scent of a rabbit or a deer or whatever it was he wanted to train the hound to do. And then he would set these red herrings in the woods, in the forest. Why? Because the odor from the red herring would mask the more subtle smell or odor of the rabbit. And he was trying to train the hounds to hone in on what it was they were supposed to be chasing and not give any attention to what? The red herrings. And so that expression, red herring, is now used in the realm of logic. That when we try to have a logical discourse, what most people do when they're losing an argument, 
rather than engage the facts, we see this all the time, all the time, is they will throw out what? A red herring in order to detract. I don't want to talk about the real issue. In order to divert attention. In order to get attention off the facts, in order to divert attention from the real issue, out comes the red herring. And so mommy's putting Susie to bed at night. I don't know where the Susie came from. I have a cousin named Susie. Maybe that's where Susie came from. Mommy's putting little four-year-old Susie to bed at night. Here are the facts. Susie woke up early, earlier than normal. It was an unbelievably full, busy day. Susie missed her scheduled afternoon nap. Susie has been increasingly grumpy. She is exhausted. Exhausted is now 9.30, a full hour and a half past her bedtime. These are the facts. She's in her little PJs in her room. She looks up into her mother's eyes. Mommy, how do mommy ants feed baby ants? Okay, mums, dads, side note. If you answer that question, you just bought wholesale a red herring. Get them to bed, all right? Get them to bed. What's she doing? She's trying to divert attention from the reality. Susie, not now, honey. If you're really still interested in answering that question in the morning, we'll deal with that question. But mommy, but, 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 but. Baby ants, when they're hungry, do they cry? Susie, get to bed. Do you understand this? We do this all the time. All the time. Why? Because we're not interested in the facts. Don't give me the cold hard truth. I I have an emotional investment, personal stake in what I believe. And now what you're saying actually contradicts what I... And and you've got these arguments and arguments and facts and facts. They're mounting, mounting. Well, what about this? And off we try to go way over here on a rabbit trail, diverting attention from the only thing that actually matters. I'm not concerned with the facts because facts rarely change people's minds. Insert a thought here. Christians, we do this all the time. How many of us would rather discuss speculative theology rather than essential piety? Oh, end time paradigms, the intricacies of the doctrine of the Trinity, the origin of, of evil and all these things. But don't talk to me about my lust. Don't you go anywhere near my greed and gluttony. Don't you bring up how I've just failed in the home to assume my responsibility as a mom or a dad or anything like that. Don't take me to any of those places. No, 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 no. I I, want to talk about this. And off we go, red herrings. And how many unbelievers, perhaps you, sitting right there, are guilty of this very thing? Red herrings. What about the Crusades? Yeah, what about them? I don't know, 800 years ago? Richard the Lionheart, hoo What about them? The crusade, what's it got to do with anything? What about all the hypocrisy in the church? Sign up, you'll feel right at home. Why do you want to discuss the hypocrisy? What about all the errors in the Bible? All the errors in this Bible. Oh, I bite my tongue whenever I hear that one. All the errors in the Bible, and and, and you are pinpointing these errors because you are a master of the ancient languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, and you've read the scriptures in their original languages, and and you're an expert when it comes to the intricacies and nuances of textual criticism. Errors in the Bible. What's that got to do with anything? What about other religions? Oh, all these world religions. There's so many different opinions out there. My friend, just because there are so many different opinions doesn't mean that one of them isn't right. Right? 
What about that lost tribe in Africa? What about that lost tribe in Africa? My friend, maybe I'm speaking directly to you this morning. I pray I am. Here's the issue. Here it is. Here are the facts as the Bible sees them. God is unbelievably holy. All right? That's what I want to talk about. God is unbelievably holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. You aren't holy. As a matter of fact, you are riddled with sin. And you are offensive to a holy God. A day of judgment is coming. You won't be able to hide. Here's the question I'm asking. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What about the Crusades? What about the Crusades? Judgment is coming. God is holy. You aren't. What are you going to do? How are you going to stand before a God whom you have offended in innumerable ways? How are you going to stand before him, this God who is, by essence, a consuming fire? What are you going to give? What excuse are you going to give? What defense are you going to give for yourself? How are you going to stand before him on the judgment day? Enough of the red herrings. Enough of the rabbit trails. Enough of this, enough of that. Oh, don't misunderstand me. I guess there's a time to discuss the Crusades. Sure. The supposed errors in the Bible, certainly. And I would be more than happy to discuss those with you if that really is a stumbling block for you. But I'm guessing it isn't. The stumbling block is this, the reality of our own heart. The depth of our own sinfulness. The fact that God is holy, we are not, judgment is coming, that is what Paul presents to the Jews. The Jews want nothing of it. But, 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 but Paul, but, but this, but that, but this. All of this diversionary tactics in order to avoid discussing the real issues, in order to avoid the facts concerning the sinfulness of their heart and their need to get right with a holy God. Here's the third lesson. And it's the main lesson, the chief lesson of this text. Here it is. Four words. All are under sin. You're thinking, Stephen, you just made that up. I didn't read that in the text. It's because I didn't read the whole text. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? That's his question. So Paul's asking, am I, am I any better off simply because I'm a Jew? So does that mean God has somehow favorably disposed to me just because I'm a Jew? Does that mean God somehow has promised me things simply because I'm a Jew? Does that mean how, somehow God gets this big smile on his face simply because I'm a Jew? Are we Jews any better off than whom? Those Gentiles are on the outside looking in. What's his answer? No. Not at all. Why? For, because. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles if you prefer, both Jews and Gentiles, here it is, are under sin. When did he levy that charge? When did he bring that accusation? Flip back two pages in my Bible anyway to chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16, and oh, listen closely. Pay careful, careful attention to what Paul writes here. For 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Wait for it. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's Paul's hypothesis that he's going to defend throughout this entire epistle. In verse 18, what does he go on to say? He brings the charge. What we have already charged that all Jews and Greeks, he's introduced that dichotomy in verse 16, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. Verse 18, for the wrath of God, here's the problem, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, they hold it down, suppress the truth. And we enter this great courtroom drama. And the Apostle Paul says, now I'm going to prove it. I'm going to call witness number one, general revelation. Creation is going to take the stand. And uh, I'm going to interview creation. And through creation, I'm going after the Gentiles. I'm going after the nations. I'm going after all those people who never had this book. I'm going after all those people who are never privy to special revelation. And through the testimony of general revelation, here's what we're going to hear clearly. Here's what is going to be proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. God himself has revealed himself immediately, directly to all people in all places at all times. They know something of the truth of God. They know something of the decree of God concerning coming judgment, and they know something of the law of God because God himself has written it upon their hearts. Therefore, having suppressed that truth, what they know to be true, they are without excuse. I'm finished with creation. Creation, Mr. Creation, thank you very much. You can take your seat. I'm now going to call Mr. Special Revelation, the Scriptures. And I'm finished with the Gentiles. I've demonstrated they're without excuse because they have suppressed the truth by their unrighteousness. I'm now going after the Jews, my fellow countrymen. They had creation too, but they had something even better. What an advantage they had as Jews. The very oracles of God. God descended on a mountain and spoke to their hero of the faith, Moses. And he gave the law. And God spoke from Moses to Malachi. And we have these scriptures. But here's what the Jews have done. They've suppressed the truth. And they've suppressed the truth by misusing that revelation. And they've turned it into what they thought was a ladder to heaven. And they have focused on externals. They have focused on their religious obedience, thinking they can actually please God by doing this and not doing that. And they have focused on their religious observance, circumcision, and everything else that goes along with it. And so they think, based on their external performance, simply because they're different from Gentiles, simply because they possess the law, simply because they boast in God, that they think this external religious observance somehow endears them to God. No, my friends, here are the facts. That circumcision pointed to the need for a radical new birth. You've rejected that. Circumcision didn't guarantee anything. It pointed to the need for spiritual renewal. It pointed to the need that you must be born again by God. That's why Nicodemus, when he comes to the Lord Jesus, do you remember that great text in John chapter 3? And the Lord Jesus says to him, Unless a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Christ assumed Nicodemus knew what he was talking about when he said you must be born again. What? 
How could Nicodemus have known that? He had the oracles of God. It's there from Moses to Malachi. But they had turned a blind eye to it. They stood upon their ethnicity. They stood upon their religious obedience and observance, their externals. And Paul says, you have completely missed the message of special revelation. Therefore, you are without excuse. Scripture, you can take your seat. I've called my two witnesses. It's pretty airtight. Right? I, I, here are all the facts. I've presented my case. I rest my case as the prosecuting attorney. And here is my charge. I made it all the way back in verse 18. And I'm now reinforcing it. I don't care if you're a Jew. I don't care if you're a Gentile. All are under sin. Now, my friends, that should bring verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 alive. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, not the wrath of God. Our problem is that the wrath of God is revealed, but here's a wonder of wonders in it that is in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned Susie earlier. Another completely hypothetical situation involving Susie, four years old. She's at the fair. Read this recently in our morning devotion book that we use as a family. It's quite good. Susie, four years old, at the fair. And uh, she sees all those games, you know, with the bottles and ping pong balls and all that kind of stuff. And there's this one game at the fair that ca- just riveting, catches her attention. Because in the middle of this game are these, is this big, stuffed, cuddly bear. And what you have to do is you get three rings. And you have to throw the three rings over the bear and win the bear. She's four-year-old. She can barely pick the rings up, let alone throw them. So she just sort of pushes them off the table, nowhere near the stuffed bear. But you know who's standing behind her? Her big brother. Been there, done that. Lays down his dollar, grabs the three rings, all three over the teddy bear. He wins the bear. And what does he do? He hands it to her. My friends, we have a big brother the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the wonder of wonders. Our big brother has done what we could never, ever do. Our big brother has fulfilled all righteousness. He has obeyed his father perfectly. Our big brother has pleased his father beautifully, wonderfully. And our big brother has paid the penalty for sinners upon Calvary's cross. And that is why the Apostle Paul can state emphatically in verse 17, the righteous. You want to be right with God. You're under sin, condemned. You want to be right with God. Well, you will live. You will live by faith. You will look away from yourself and you will rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I promised, I now fulfill that promise. We end where we began with the words from that beautiful song. How vast and measureless the flood of mercy unrestrained. The penalty was paid in full. The spotless lamb was slain. Salvation, what a precious gift. Received by grace through faith. We stand in robes of righteousness. We stand in Jesus' name. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the beauty of the gospel.
And we pray now that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive these glad tidings of eternal salvation. We intercede on behalf of unbelievers gathered here this very moment, this day, in this place. And we ask you to be merciful in showing them their sin and their condemned condition in your sight. And we ask you to be gracious by drawing their hearts heavenward to the Lord Jesus, a mighty Savior, a big brother, who has done all on our behalf. Our Father, we do praise his matchless name this day. We do celebrate his great and glorious work. And we ask you to receive our thanks. In his name we pray. Amen.